Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, I'm super excited to welcome my really good friend. She's always been Sarah Brubacher to me, but when I picked up her recently published book, it says Sarah McDonald on it. Sarah and I met about a gazillion years ago. I had just moved across the country. I had just started working for StubHub. And I got invited to go to this cool event called Wisdom 2.0, which still happens today. At that point, it was in its very baby beginnings, I think. And I was in a breakout session with Mike Robbins, who we've had on the podcast before, and you know. And I was sitting next to this woman with kind of this shockingly blonde white hair, super short and cool, interesting haircut, whatever. Anyway, as any of our listeners remember who had heard that episode with Mike, I mean, Mike is really good at getting people to open up. And he asked just a couple super simple questions to get us started. And all of a sudden, here I am with this woman, Sarah, that I had just met. And we were both like boo-hoo-hooing on each other's shoulders, telling our stories. And that story that Sarah shared with me that day is actually the genesis and the roots of the book that she just published called The Cancer Channel. We're going to hear a little bit more about that in a few moments. But just suffice to say that Sarah is just always that person that was kind of at the mothership. So eBay owned StubHub. And I could always count on Sarah to be like, what the hell is going on down there? Or I would ask her her opinions on things. She had a very fancy job there for a while. And so she had sort of the inside scoop. I just, Sarah, I don't even know if I ever told you this, but just how much I really appreciated having a friend on the eBay side when I didn't always feel like a super duper friendliness between StubHub and eBay. So I just love you so much for that. I'm super excited to welcome you, Sarah, to the podcast. And to kick us off, we'd love to hear just a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now and anything else that, I don't know, might have come up in the book that you just wrote. (laughs) What a terrific introduction, Anne. And as I was telling you before we started, this is the story I always think about as well, the first time you and I met, where because of that space that Mike created, you and I, from one of our initial conversations, have just always had a very intimate friendship. And I am so very grateful as well. So, you know, my story, like everyone's, is unique. And I grew up the oldest child of two academics. You know, my parents met in graduate school when they were both getting their PhDs. I expected after I graduated from college with an English lit degree that I would become a professor. You know, it it wasn't just my parents. My uncle was a professor, my grandfather, my great grandfather, everyone had been professors. So that's what I expected. I decided, though, upon graduating, that I would go work for a couple of years before I went back to school. And I loved it. I really enjoyed business and thought, I'll just put the PhD off. And I ended up moving to New York City with my job because I was an English lit major. Of course, I was doing financial statement analysis. (laughs) (laughs) Makes perfect sense. Yeah, as you do. (laughs) I talked my way into this job and actually took a couple of accounting classes, which I loved, by the way. I love accounting. Financial statement analysis for a number of years. It took me to New York City and just had a fabulous time living in New York. And my parents were like, what happened to that PhD? And I started thinking about what I was going to do after 
this job that I was in, and I had been reading about consulting and was really super interested in this idea of going into small businesses and large businesses and helping them analyze what's working and what's not and making recommendations. And so I started cold calling a whole bunch of management consulting firms, and they all said, great, when you have your MBA, reach out to us. Oh, geez, I need to go get my MBA. This was unexpected. And so I had really become fascinated by food. I was studying food and teaching myself to cook. I was living by myself in New York City and had the Silver Palette cookbook and was working my way through teaching myself how to cook. One of the places I looked at for business school was Cornell. And I was really interested in Cornell in great part because the Moosewood restaurant, which is a famous vegetarian restaurant, was in Ithaca. And I thought, oh my goodness, I could go to this amazing place where I had been studying their cookbook as well. And so when I was accepted at Cornell, I stopped doing interviews anywhere else. I thought, this is great. I'm going to go to Cornell. And I did. And I had two of the best years of my life. I will tell you, when I called my parents to say, I've applied to business school and I've been accepted at Cornell, the first words out of their mouths were, can this lead to a PhD? (laughs) But isn't it funny how like you couldn't have scripted that. You couldn't have scripted, I'm going to start as an English lit major, and then I'm going to go to B school because I've been doing financial analysis. And then I'm going to pick Cornell because I love the silver palette cookbook. Like you couldn't have scripted this. And there's something there about some serendipity, I think. You had been talking to me in preparation for this about aha moments. And when I was about 26, when I was working at the insurance company doing financial statement analysis, and I was starting to think about what was next, I was having an existential crisis. I was like, what am I meant to be doing with my life? Everything had been planned up until finishing college. And then I got off the path. The path was meant to be a PhD. And I just didn't think that that was the path for me any longer. And so I didn't have the book. I didn't have the instruction manual. So I couldn't figure out what it was. And I actually remember taking a train ride up to upstate New York. I had a random piece of paper and I just started writing down things I wanted to accomplish in my life. And one of the things I wrote was graduate school, but it could be in anything. And I was thinking, was it law school? Is it business school? What kind of graduate school is it? And it was during that bizarre train ride where I got thinking about living my life as a series of experiences and said to myself, Sarah, you've always been this hyper-focused, hard-charging, intense, to a fault person. And maybe what you need to do is calm the fuck down and just relax and have experiences and spend your life living and being present in the moment, experiencing things rather than always thinking about what's coming next. That was a really important train ride that when I got on the train, I had no idea, but I still have the piece of paper. I can reach over and pull it out and show it to you. I love what you're saying about living life as a series of of experiences. You know, I agree with Anne. There was definitely some serendipity there, but I am also loving the adventure piece of, well, I'm going to go to B school, but I love food. And so I'm going to pick a school that's near Moosewood Cafe, which just coincidentally, I was talking to my nephew last night about their eggplant Parmesan recipe. There was this serendipity, but also this, 
I'm going to indulge my interests as well with my goals. So I can go to B school, but then I can be in this place with all this great food. For me, Cornell was this ideal place. It was in upstate New York and I'd spent time in my life. My family, we would go to a lake in upstate New York every summer. The lake is Lake George, but we went to a family camp up there called Silver Bay. And that's when I really started hiking. So in upstate New York at Cornell, I could hike. I could go to these amazing restaurants because of course, number one hotel school in the country. So there's all this good food in Ithaca. I could study that. Oh, and I mean, Cornell is an embarrassment of riches because they believe Ezra Cornell founded Cornell saying any student can study any subject. So they really encourage you to go study any subject. I am coming across as a not very driven. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but let me just for our audience, let me just dissuade anybody that's listening of that. And in some ways, I'm not even sure if I agree with that, because what you just told us is you got on that train and your driven nature drew up a list of things you wanted to accomplish and talked yourself into having a different approach to life. And that's kind of what one of my questions was is, where did that come from, do you think? Because most people either kind of let life happen to them or there might be some big goals, get married, have kids, you know, whatever. But it's like you were coaching yourself in a way. Yeah. And I think when I was having this existential ennui at age 26, what, what am I meant to do with my life? It wasn't just the train ride, I had spent a lot of time in my studio apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, just kind of thinking about like, what am I doing with this life? Even though I was living in Manhattan, and that was a super cool life. Actually, there was a large part of me that was unhappy, because I felt I had no direction. And I felt, gosh, I've been given all of these gifts, and I'm doing nothing with them. And it was really tough as only a 20 something, you know, you have those crises in your life. And your 20s is a typical time that people have the ennui that I am describing. I was not alone. I thought I was the only one going through it, but it turns out I wasn't alone. Anyway, so I go to Cornell and I get my MBA and two of the most incredible best years of my life. And I told myself, you are allowed to pursue everything you want to pursue during these two years, which included playing on like four intramural sports teams, including ice hockey, which I had never done before. And I also talked my way into writing for the business school paper. I convinced the editor that we needed a food column. So all of these great restaurants, I should go to these restaurants. And, and you I, should pay me. <laughs> yeah, you should, you should reimburse me. Yes, for, for these restaurants I go to, and I will write reviews on them. And I was single. So I said, and I will bring a date and I will also review the date. <laughs> That's amazing. It was super fun. And it's kind of a thread for later because it turns out I really, really enjoyed writing that monthly column and kind of told me I would enjoy writing a book. Let's fast forward a little bit. What brought you out West? I can't remember what initially brought you to the West Coast. So I graduate from business school. I go to work at what was Anderson Consulting that became Accenture in their strategy practice. I take a sabbatical from that because I realize I actually don't want to be a consultant for a number of different reasons that I won't go into. But I take a sabbatical and I go to culinary school, which was freaking awesome and gets back to my whole love of food. I also went traveling around the world. I took a number of international trips. And then I also wrote a book during this time that obviously was never published, but it was called The Business of Dating, 
a practical, tactical guide to dating in your 30s. I did it with a girlfriend of mine. And what we did is we took all of the acronyms and kind of frameworks that you learned in business school and in consulting, and we applied them to the dating world. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll keep moving. I need that updated for dating in your 50s, please. If you could just send me over, <laughs> update that and send me over a copy, I'd appreciate it. I think the frameworks would still apply. And <laughs> so anyway, I left consulting and I talked my way on to a project that Accenture was doing with eBay. I had been working in Boston. I transferred to San Francisco and I was working on a partnership between eBay an Accenture called Connection to eBay. So I worked there. And then when they decided to shut down the partnership, they said to me, hey, do you want to go back into consulting? And I said, um, no fucking way. <laughs> so I actually went to work for eBay. And that was the start of what was a 14-year career with eBay. I want to jump in for a second because you've said a few times that you talked your way in. You are obviously very persuasive because I will say as an accounting major, I'm listening to you say you talked your way into financial statement analysis and you took two accounting classes. <laughs> then you talked your way into writing a food column. You were an English lit major, so you had some schooling behind that. And then you talked your way into this consulting gig. There's something really interesting there about this level of confidence. It feels a little bit like I can talk my way into anything. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate people who let me experiment. I think it's fantastic when you make major life changes, and I'd love to talk about that, but I seldom will make a major life change without experimenting in it first. So an example would be, you know, here I am in consulting. I talk my way into a project that involves eBay and the consulting firm, and that helps me get into eBay. I still have my foot in the consulting door. I have my foot in the eBay door, and that's how I then move into a tech career. A little bit of a uh, test and learn, right? <laughs> yeah, test and learn, exactly. Which now, as an executive coach, I talk to people a lot about this. When they're talking about wanting to do career changes or make major life changes, I talk to them about, let's experiment. Let's try a couple of different things, and let's see what works. What resonates with you? Don't make the major life change. Does this work? Yeah. Take a little bite of it first. Right. So then you find yourself at eBay and you get an opportunity to have a pretty interesting job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So eight years in, I was running what's called seller development at eBay. So working with eBay's top 2,500 sellers. And I loved this job. You know, I felt like this made great use of all of my skills, but I was approached by human resources to interview for a chief of staff role to the newly appointed president of eBay. And I, you know, my questions were, um, one, what's a chief of staff? Who is this guy? I'd love to have a conversation with him. And so I walked into the room, I met Devin Wenig. And I don't know, by minute five, I was convinced Devin and I would work phenomenally well together. I asked him why eBay? And he had had a very, very successful career at Thomson Reuters. And he said, I want to make the largest impact on people in this world that I can. I think eBay is the best way for me to do that. And the minute he said that, I was like, I'm all in. Because I was at eBay for the same reasons. There is a reason I was at eBay for 14 years, because I believe to the core of my being that we were there to help enable economic opportunity for all. And that role where I was running seller development for eBay and working with the 2,500 sellers, unbelievable 
stories of entrepreneurship and resilience and will. These were amazing human beings that I had the great privilege of advising and guiding and working with and learning from. And if I could just brag about Sarah for a second, I mean, this was before my time, but I saw what you sewed when you were in that role. And I don't think I've ever seen somebody in an organization have such a positive relationship with customers and and sellers both. Even when we were researching, there is a lot of love for you out in the world from those folks that you worked with so long ago. And that is pretty rare. Not only did you have that privilege, but I really, I think that they totally felt it as well. It was so mutual. Actually, eBay has a big customer event, an annual customer event. It was originally called eBay Live, and then it became eBay Open. And I had the great privilege of being the MC at a number of eBay Opens and actually also at the 20th anniversary of eBay. And that for me was just the most amazing experience ever, getting up and being able to speak with the customers of eBay, the sellers and the buyers, but primarily the sellers, as well as the executives who I was working very intimately with and kind of bridge the conversation between the two of them. It was the highlight of my career, bar none. So at this point, it's sounding like your life has been going swimmingly well, and you're going after all of these adventures, and you're talking your way into the things you want, and things are falling into place. And I'm wondering if things kept moving at that same Wonderful, positive flow. Right. So just prior to the promotion to chief of staff, I joke with my husband, I got a personal promotion. We got married. And I thanked my husband for the personal promotion. I thanked Evan for the professional promotion. And now that I had a moment to breathe, I decided to go to some of those doctor's appointments that you put off. And I had found a lump in the floor of my mouth and had spoken to my dentist about it. And I said, you know, you just did a cleaning is this an infection? What is this? And she said, there's a spectrum of things. It could be it could be an infection that we can give you antibiotics for, or there's a super, super rare and curable cancer that it might be, but you know, it won't be that. And fast forward, that's exactly what it was. So I was diagnosed with adenoid cystic carcinoma, which I like to refer to as badass salivary gland cancer. I was at work when I received the cancer diagnosis. I told my HR business partner, Kristen, you know, pulled her to the side, told her, she said, don't worry about it, but you need to tell Devin. And I pulled Devin to the side and told Devin. And in both cases, they said, go home, take care of this. Don't come back until you're healthy. We got you. Which is just such a amazingly beautiful gift that they gave you. Because I think so many times people are in a situation where there's not that kind of understanding and grace. Yeah. It's very easy for me to get on a a soapbox about this because I hear terrible stories of individuals who are diagnosed with a life-threatening disease. They are unable to work. Therefore, they lose their jobs and their income and their insurance. And then those same people need to make that choice to either go through with the treatments, take on that crippling debt and bankrupt their families in order to live or choose to forego the treatments and let the disease take its course in order not to bankrupt their family. And I have heard cases of both. Both are just tragic. Yeah. It's just a horrific decision point. And we could have a whole other episode just on our healthcare system 
But there you are, you're sitting down at the eBay offices at least an hour, hour and 20 minutes on a good day from your home in San Francisco, and you've gotten this diagnosis. So what happens next? Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, I got the diagnosis on a Wednesday. I drove home in shock, told Jeff, and the next day drove back down in order to try to run an offsite for Devin and his executive team. And it was when I was actively freaking out, <laughs> trying to run an executive meeting and, and had this earworm in my head going, I have cancer, I have cancer, I have cancer. And that earworm was just getting louder and louder and uh, was so distracting that I said, you know, I can't do this. And that's when I pulled Kristen to the side. And that's when I spoke to Devin. And that's when I drove home the hour and a half through a curtain of tears because I was realizing, oh my God, I really do have cancer and called Jeff on the way home. He walked into his boss's office and she said, <laughs> go home and be with your woman and don't come back until you guys know what you're dealing with. So we had examples of two companies and the leadership of those companies really standing behind people in crisis. And it was wonderful because it was one thing Jeff and I didn't have to worry about. We knew our companies had our backs. Which is amazing. So you get this diagnosis. And oh, by the way, at the same time, you had had another personal project you were trying to achieve. Right. We were in the process of going through IVF and we were kind of a week away from IVF. And in true project management form, I was parallel processing the IVF and a diagnosis. I didn't know what this lump was. So I was doing them at the same time. And so once we discovered that I had cancer, we called off the IVF. The second phone call after my husband was to my fertility doctor to say, we have to cancel the IVF next week because I now have cancer. And she said to me, you know, Sarah, there's a big distance between your mouth and your uterus. <laughs> so let's get through the treatments for the salivary gland cancer, and then we'll figure out the baby part. But she's like, don't worry about that. The embryos on ice. So yet another person who is there supporting and being part of your system to sort of help you. But I'm sure it took a lot more than that to get through what you got through. Yeah, I guess for a moment, I just want to speak to two amazing human beings who were there from the moment of diagnosis. And they were my fertility doctor. And then Kristen, who was my HR business partner, both Ruth and Kristen knew of my diagnosis within hours of me telling my husband. And they each texted me multiple times a day for the next three weeks just to check, not in any sort of annoying way, just more in a, how are you doing? Or making a suggestion like Ruth suggested. She said, I don't know if you believe in the connection between mind and body, but guided imagery is a really powerful practice that you might try to help process this cancer diagnosis. And I found guided imagery to be unbelievable as a way of kind of processing and accepting my cancer diagnosis. And had that sort of thing been part of your life before then? And I didn't have time for meditation <laughs> or yoga. I say to my yoga trained certified <laughs> friend, I never felt like I had time. I was moving a million miles a minute. In fact, one of my very best friends, a woman named Tripti, 
she was studying to be a yoga instructor at the time that this was going on. And she was kindly inviting me to her yoga classes. And I went to a couple of them and it was sheer living hell for me because I was like, I can't sit still. I have 47 things to get done before the end of the day. That is right. So I had not made time for anything like that before. And then suddenly when I had this first cancer diagnosis, I suddenly did have some time. And Ruth, Dr. Ruth suggested I try guided imagery. When I went to Tripti and told her about my health diagnosis, she said, you know, you have some of the best doctors in the country at Stanford who are going to be helping you. She said, we're going to we're going to call them team one. They're the Western medicine team. Would you let me be in charge of team two? Team two is going to be the Eastern practices. And so Tripti said, would you be open beyond the guided imagery? Would you be open to doing some meditation, some acupuncture, some energy work, and some yoga? My initial reaction was, can't hurt. Might as well try it. And I found it critical. I think the Western medicine saved my body. Eastern practices saved my brain and my soul. Because I have to say, for me, the emotional struggle of the diagnoses was in some ways harder than the physical struggle. You know, I had I had some serious side effects having to do with the cancer treatments. I was dealing with a lot of pain. I was tested, but I have a really high threshold of pain. But the emotional pain I was going through, I was seriously freaked out that I would not see the end of the year, especially with the salivary gland cancer. Everything you read about it says relentless, incurable, all of this. So you kind of feel like it's coming to get you. And then I had my second cancer diagnosis, which we haven't gotten to, but when I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the same time, I knew that the breast cancer, that actually I had found the lump six years earlier and I had been misdiagnosed. So I was sitting there thinking to myself, okay, I might get lucky with the salivary gland cancer because we caught it early. We most definitely did not catch the breast cancer. I've had it for at least six years. So as I say, I didn't think I was going to live to see the end of the year. So I actually went to my breast oncologist and said, my mental health is suffering. (laughs) And I think that I might die of a heart attack before either of these cancers is able to kill me would you please prescribe me some anti-anxiety medication because I need I need help. First of all, listening to you talk about two different cancer diagnoses, right? And these were both primary cancers. The odds of that are so extraordinarily low. But can you just say how close together they were diagnosed? Because I think it's really hard for most of us to wrap our heads around that. I was diagnosed with the salivary gland cancer mid-January of 2012, and it was three weeks after that, after I had had the surgery and was meeting with my head and neck surgeon to talk about the next protocol of treatment, which was going to be radiation to my mouth, where I said to him, you know, six years ago, I found a lump in my breast, and I went to my OBGYN, we did a mammogram, we did a sonogram, we did biopsies. I had just minor surgery to get a better bite out of the lump. And I was told that it wasn't cancer. And I said to him, given that I've now been given this cancer diagnosis, is it a chance that this lump in my breast is metastatic adenoid cystic carcinoma? So like it traveled, (laughs) you know, is that possible? And he said, Sarah, you know, when adenoid cystic carcinoma travels, it metastasizes to your lungs or your brain. 
which, you know, was really heartwarming. But he said, so if you have cancer in your breast, which you were told was not cancer, Sarah, if you had cancer in your breast, it would be a separate primary source cancer. And frankly, for someone so young, we just never see it. So if it would make you feel better, you should pursue that. So it took me kind of pulling up my big girl pants and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to second guess all the doctors who told me it wasn't cancer and this lovely doctor who's telling me that I'm being a hypochondriac. <laughs> that's, that's what it sounded like. I said, I'm going to go get it checked out. And it turns out it had been missed and it was breast cancer. And by this point, it was stage three breast cancer. So what I was really lucky with was that the breast cancer wasn't aggressive. And so it had just been slowly growing, but not so aggressively that my life was in danger yet. So in many ways, I like to think that the salivary gland cancer saved my life because had I not gotten that diagnosis, I wouldn't have gone back and checked on the breast cancer. It just would have continued advancing. At stage three, that speaks to the size of the tumor and that there was lymph node involvement, but it hadn't moved to another organ, which is stage four. And things get infinitely trickier when it's stage four. I want to spend a little bit of time here. You have now two cancer diagnoses. You are getting the support on the work front from your husband, from other people in your life. But this has got to be just an unbelievably scary and difficult time. And so you found some meditation and yoga helped. I know you have a really strong, huge circle of friends as well, but I'm just curious, what was really going on for you emotionally during this time? How were you dealing with it when you were in the moment? I liken it to going through grief. Grief, we know there are five stages and we know that it is nonlinear. At the moment in my life, I just got married, just gotten promoted, and I had all these hopes and dreams of what my life was going to become, including a child, right? Or children. I had these great hopes. And so in part, I was grieving a future that wasn't going to happen. And I was having a lot of trouble with that. And so I was just super sad. I wasn't mad. I didn't go through the denial thing, but I was super, super sad. And I would love to tell you that I reached out to a ton of people who had had cancer. I actually didn't know I knew two people who had had cancer and the one friend had thyroid cancer. And when I went to her, she's like, well, I kind of had cancer light. And I was like, you had cancer. So I was really sad. I was doing a lot of reading about cancer and trying desperately to read about what the lived experience was because the books I was finding were books on why cancer happens and how we fight it. You know, what are the treatments and what are the potential side effects? But what I wasn't finding is books that explained what it felt like to go through chemo or radiation and what does it feel like emotionally to go through it? How do I wrap my head around it? How do I make sense of it? And frankly, how do I, if this is the last year I have to live, how do I do that gracefully? That's what I was thinking about that year. And so that became the genesis of the book. You know, there's this part in the book where you're pretty early on in your treatment, you are going through your treatments kind of concurrently and you're waiting for tests and you write about you're feeling terrified, but you wrote something that I think is so profound and so relevant to all of us. And I'm just going to read this little bit. How is it that a few short weeks ago, I could be kept up at night by something as insignificant as my work to-do list? 
How did that ever seem important? My to-do list has now been reduced to live. I get goosebumps just reading that out loud right now. First of all, I'm really happy you successfully checked off the one item on your to-do list. (laughs) I am an achiever after all. (laughs) Exactly. I'm just curious to hear how that has impacted how you have lived since then. Thank you. That's one of my favorite passages in the book and just one of the epiphanies or insights, whatever, as just that everything else is just noise. When it comes down to it in movies, if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. You know, I I think that's actually a quote from The Princess Bride. (laughs) But it's true. Everything else becomes noise. And so focusing on what are the important things. And something that got cut from the book is a quote from my friend Bonnie who, when I told her I had been diagnosed with cancer, she said, you know, Sarah, you know, the difference between you and me is we both know that we're going to die, but you actually believe it. And that is the difference. My husband, Jeff, and I talk about BC and AC. BC is before cancer and AC is after cancer. And there's such a visceral understanding that life is precious and short and we must do what is in our hearts. Nothing else matters. So that's just so clear to me. That doesn't mean I don't work. Like we, we all need to eat. Jeff and I both work, but I'm very clear on what I want to work on. And I'm very clear that I need to exercise because my health is important. I'm very clear that I need to meditate every day. I'm very clear that I need to read every day, which is also like an exercise of the brain. Like I now intentionally engage and things that bring me joy and that make me healthy as a whole person. Cancer or no cancer, I mean, that is something that I think we should all live by because we do not know what is around the corner. You are living a healthy, productive, fast pace. Some people would say from the outside, like this really exciting sort of sexy job and let you know whatever, and you had no idea. But for everybody listening to take those moments to figure out what brings you joy, to engage in those things that you don't think you have time for, but somehow you will find time for if you really, really make it is incredibly valuable advice. Well, you need to make promises to yourself, right? We talk about uh, relationship to self and the importance of relationship to self. You are the most precious gift you have ever been given. I just want to say that again. You're the most precious gift you have ever been given. So how do you treat and care for the most precious gift you have ever been given? Just like I have a relationship with my husband, I make promises to him. And out of respect and love for him, I keep those promises. And I need to do the same with me. So I calendar when I work out. I calendar when I meditate. I calendar when I read. I get up an hour before my husband and my daughter to meditate for 10 minutes or longer, and to read or to write. And I do it with a cup of coffee in front of the fire, and it is my time, and it is what I promise myself. And are there mornings where I'm like, I am tired. I want to stay in bed. And I'm like, no, you have a date with yourself. Get up. And I get up, and I never regret it. If anything, I say, why didn't you get up earlier so you could read more or write more or meditate more? So anyway, I could spend a lot of time on this topic too. And that was one of my insights and one of the ways I live differently now. So I don't want to skip over something you just said because your story has 
a number of happy endings. So not only are you still here with us and very much alive, but you mentioned the word daughter. Yeah. So one of the stories I tell in the book is after I received my second cancer diagnosis, my breast oncologist called Jeff and me back to her office. And she said, hey, I understand that you guys were going through fertility treatments here at Stanford prior to your diagnoses. And I'm wondering, what have you heard about your fertility? And I said, gosh, well, I understand that if I live through the year, that like in two years time, maybe we could pursue IVF again. And she just looked and she shook her head. And I said, "Uh oh, and she said, Sarah, I'm going to put you on a hormone suppressing medication for the next 10 years. And so she said, you will need estrogen to get pregnant. And so you're, you will not be able to conceive and carry a child. You'll be 54 when I take you off this medication. And there's not a doctor that's going to perform IVF on you. So she said, I just, I want you to understand you won't be able to carry a child. And I have to say that was heartbreaking news for Jeff and me, even though we knew it was unclear whether I was going to survive the two cancers, but still we had pinned such hopes on having a child. So it was heartbreaking for us. So fast forward two years past my cancer treatments, we were exploring surrogacy because we were starting to feel optimistic that I might live. And I shared that with my breast oncologist at my two-year appointment. And she said, I'm so glad you bring this up. She said, there's just been a European study of Belgian and German women who willfully, willfully took themselves off their cancer medications, got pregnant, had babies, and then went back on their cancer medications, and they didn't have higher incidence of recurrence. So if you'd like to try it, let's have a baby. And so I did. And I had a baby. At, at 48. <laughs> this whole time I'm being told, you're so young for cancer. And then I get into another part of the hospital and they're like, you're so old for a baby. <laughs> you know? I'm like, oh man, man, I can't win for trying. So yeah, I have my daughter and today is her six and a half birthday. Look at that. Those halves are super important when you're six years old. And she's been very clear what she wants for her birthday. But anyway, the book is called The Cancer Channel and the the subtitle is, you know, one year, two cancers, three miracles. And my three miracles are no evidence of disease for the salivary gland cancer, no evidence of disease for the breast cancer. And then I have this amazing feisty little force of nature known as Rory McDonald in my life that I was just so, so, so lucky to be able to have. Well, in the spirit of sweet little six and a half year old Rory, I'm wondering if you could think back to your own self at around that age, is there any piece of advice or conversation that you would want to have with little Sarah of Rory's age? Two things. One is don't spend so much time worrying about what the future is because it all kind of works out. Not maybe the way you thought it was going to, but it all kind of works out. So don't, don't worry about it so much, Sarah. And number two is even when the hardest things are happening, there's good that comes from it as well. People who talk about the horror of my year of cancer, I'm like, there was some beauty during that year and some beautiful gifts and practices and happy outcomes that came out of it. And yes, I recognize I did get to live. That's the greatest gift. And I try to be as grateful and cognizant of that. 
but there's some great good that came out of it. So telling myself those two things would have saved me some heartache. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe your, your beautiful advice will save somebody else some heartache as well. Is now a good time for me to thank the two of you. This has been such a blast. I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak to you. So thank you both. Well, thank you. We really, really appreciate having you on. Yeah, this has just been awesome. I'm just, I'm so excited to have, to meet you virtually. It feels like face-to-face. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. That just feels like the perfect spot to wrap up our episode today. For our listeners, we will have a link to Sarah's book, The Cancer Channel. And I just have to say the subtitle because it's so beautiful. One year, two cancers, three miracles. So we'll have all the info on that in the show notes. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode and would love if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. And please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.